As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes, Adult film stars, sportsman drag racing. But today, Big Jed, we discuss our individual three favorite racing seasons ever. Yeah, like, um, you know, obviously we'll talk about it in the show and they'll hear it that, you know, it's well over 60 years of uh, racing years between your career and mine on the track. And uh, rather difficult to find the three that ring out as your favorite three, but we were able to do that. And uh, the, the similarities in the list are just coincidence. I swear I did not look at yours and you certainly didn't look at mine. So it's really cool how those uh, stories kind of intertwine with one another. But I think it'll be fun for the listener uh, to, to hear what we ring, what we uh, figure as our three favorites. So it should be a good show for you. I had a blast, and uh, this is absolutely going through the Wayback Machine. We're showing our age. Uh, it's a fun show. I think you're going to like this. But first, PJ North. Okay, Jed, this is a, uh, a prompt and an idea for the show that you brought to me. We love the idea, but for the listeners... Just kind of lay this out. What is the, what is the framework of today's episode? 
All right, Luke, so it's, I'll give a little background for it. I listen to local sports radio, as many people do here. Um, unfortunately, um, I'm having to listen to it again today, the day after Alabama got drilled by Georgia <laughs> in the national championship game. Congrats, dogs fans. I've been uh, getting my share of that feedback, if you will. But nonetheless, um, one of the hosts of one of the shows that I listen to uh, had with his producer, he had uh, a little um, – a skit where they talked about their favorite five years of life and what age they were at their favorite five years of life. And each of them did it. And they told why it was their favorite. It was really cool, a really cool idea. And, you know, it, that, it just got me thinking, what is something like that that we can do just for fun? Because we talk so much business here on the show wanted to see uh, if we could come up with a fun topic. So I propose to you that uh, you and I discuss our favorite three seasons, three years of racing, what uh, what year that was on the calendar and discuss kind of a little bit about why those years uh, ring out to us as, as being special. And uh, you like the idea and now we're going to run with it and talk about that this evening. I'll be honest, when you roll it out, I'm like, oh, this sounds like a lot of fun. And this will be an easy episode to put together, and it's great content in these times where there's not really any racing going on. I got to tell you, Jed, this has been a fun thought exercise, but this has been a thought exercise. Like I find my, found myself going through kind of trying to, to, to put the pieces back together in, in retrospect, right? I mean, you're talking a, a almost 30 years now, and a few more for you, I believe, that, that I've been involved on the racetrack and it's yeah. been fun. Like it's been fun to think back year by year, memory by memory, if you will. Yeah, it has been a blast. Um, you know, obviously you have accomplished a lot and had a tremendous amount of special memories in racing. So I can imagine how challenging that was for you. Uh, I've got 37 years now, Luke of racing. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's rather difficult to, to take three of those and single them out as being my favorite um, just for many, many reasons. But uh, I think I was able to do that and, and kind of explain why. And, and I can see in the show notes that you've done the same. So should be a really good time. Uh, I, I definitely feel like I know you pretty well. I, I guess I've known you now for the better part of 20 years. And uh, I, I learned some stuff about you just reading through your notes here, which is pretty cool. So I'm looking forward to to hearing your story, just like I'm sure the listener is. No, I think what this hammered home for me, Jed, and it, it's not shocking news. I I like to to think of myself as as more than a than a racer, but that's kind of a new development in my life. <laughs> oh, no doubt. And when you when you look back, I I think you're very much the same way on on kind of your your personal history, like racing is so intertwined about it. And when you, when you take an opportunity to do something like this and look back, like every experience obviously brought us to, to where we are today. And like, I'm pretty, I'm tickled with where I am today. So depending on, 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 you know, like a listener perspective, I may or, or may not have much in my life, but in my mind, I've exceeded every expectation that I ever had for my life to this point. Like, and I thought I had kind of um, ambitious goals, you know, like, but uh, to have a happy family, incredible career, racing success beyond anything that I dreamed of. And, and it all like kind of wraps around this sport that we've been involved in forever. And 
the most amazing community and group of friends that basically everyone in my life I've met through racing, you know, with very few exceptions. And, and it, I guess this exercise is kind of hammered home for me more than anything that this has been my life. Like this, I've lived this for 30 years. And I guess I knew that, but actually kind of going through trying to, to, to pinpoint, you know, the three favorite years, which is a incredibly difficult exercise. I don't know if you struggled with this as much as I did. I think that was kind of what, what the takeaway was at least on my end. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, exactly what you said, you know, I, I, not braggadocious and certainly still have things that I want to accomplish, but, uh, I, I guess I positioned myself in, in bracket racing or sportsman racing, if you will, in a spot that I never envisioned being in. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I hear people, people, when people say, thanks for what you do for the sport, it's, it's as humbling as it can possibly be because, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I'm contributing to the, to the health and wellness of our sport at a level that, that deserves any, um, any thank yous. But if someone feels that way, you know, that's a, that's pretty darn special. And, and I know that, that you're in a position uh, that's unique in our sport as well. So um, really cool, really cool to get to do this, just to reminisce and think about and just go down memory lane, if you will. And, um, you know, hope the listeners enjoy it because it's, uh, again, I've read through years and it's really cool. And I know you'll elaborate on the bullet points and I can't wait to hear it, Luke. So pretty excited about this one. And uh, hopefully we don't gas bag too long and keep the, <laughs> keep the listeners interest. Now, this will be fun. See, we're going to go in descending order, like our, our third favorite season up to our, our favorite. I think so. I think that's the way to do this. All right. Well, why don't you kick us off? All right, so uh, my first year on my list, and many people, uh, many people won't get to uh, to have uh, this year on their favorites, but mine is 1986, Luke. Um, I started racing, as I've told here on the show, uh, in 1984 at the age of 13, and um, you know, I, I got out there in a 71 Pontiac Granville and I wish people would look that up because I can't, I just can't stress enough what kind of vehicle I was in here and quality equipment. It was really good equipment. My dad, uh, I think my dad put a head gasket on a guy's car and the guy traded him that car to do it. So, um, you know, there was probably about 60 bucks in it, Luke, and a little bit of labor. Um, so we, I, I take this car and I race it 84, 85. And um, my dad, you know, finds me something else to race. Hey, we, you know, we let Jed race this or that. And I raced a few different cars. In, in 1986, uh, the year in question, um, you know, I'm 14, going to turn 15 in July. Uh, around here, we started our racing season um, around April 1st. So it, you know, it it was going to be just a little bit before I turned 15 on the track. But I'm racing with grown men, you know, in my second full year, but my third season of racing. Um, I, I'm I'm really struggling, Luke. Uh, I'm I'm running this 455 Quadrajet powered. Pontiac Granville with no hood, mud grips on the back. And my dad, 
says, you know, we got to find you something better to race. This, this thing just ain't no good. It was, you know, I, like I said, I raced a little bit of everything. I had junk cars. I, I had a very poor understanding for what it took to win. I didn't work hard on my equipment. I, I just cranked it up on Saturday and I drove it to the track. Track was about three miles, three and a half miles from home. I drove it up there at 13, 14, 15, and basically drove anything I'd get my hands on. Early part of 86, my dad says, we got to do something different. Um, I, I tell you what, I, I'm going to let you race my truck. He's got like a 1970, um, that old Chevy green Chevrolet pickup. And um, this this thing's a little rough, but, you know, it's it's pretty good old truck. It's simple. It don't have a lot of the vacuum stuff on it and things that that impact them and he said i just think this is going to be a little bit better so you know i i raced that thing running high tens i got close to winning a time or two during the season during the early part of the season but i just couldn't seal the deal so i'm going high tens and uh that's eighth mile of course and it it, it wasn't as slow then as it is now uh, but it certainly wasn't fast either. You know, the faster cars were running low eights to low nines. And, um, you know, I'm racing dad's truck and I'm clicking along pretty good one night at the track, just right after I'd turned uh, a 15, shortly after my 15th birthday in July. And uh, driving pretty good. And driving pretty good in 1986 means I was probably averaging about a 570 or 580 light. So um, back then, if you were five anything, you you know, you give it the yes. Sure, sure. Got this it. Is, Nailed it. And and these stories are all from Lesser Mountain, I assume? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's mm-hmm. the only, that was the only track I knew existed. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't think there were any other racetracks to race at. So um, so, you know, I'm clicking along there and, and this was a five amber tree. Uh, my first, uh, three amber tree I saw was 1987. So, um, this is still a five amber tree and, you know, I'm, I got this thing built up and I'm one, two, three, four, go, you know, and could you imagine Luke leaving on go and it, it's the fifth thing you say as the trees falling it, the tree, it took forever. So, um, I, you know, I make it to the semifinals, which I had been to a couple of times uh, prior and just fouled it up or finally run into a racer that halfway knew what he was doing and I couldn't beat him. So I'd never been past that round. You can imagine, you know, the nerves and anxiety I was feeling. So I I win the semifinal round in my dad's truck. And uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm going to the final and immediately what pops into my head is my dad said, look, you're about to be 15. This was just a few weeks prior. You're about to be 15. You know, I don't want to waste a bunch of money getting you a race car. The, uh, the way you're driving, now, you know, I, you still got a lot to learn. Not that you, you just suck, but you got a lot to learn. And I don't want to waste money getting you a race car until you show me that you can win. And he said, you know, if you win a race this season, we'll, we'll get you a race car. I'm like, okay, well, I'm in the final now, shortly after my 15th birthday. So obviously I'm hoping of, of seeing a win light and uh, I'm going to have the dreams going to come true that I'm going to get a race car if I can turn on this win light. And 
as I told you pre-show, you're, you're talking 35 years ago now. So embarrassingly enough, I, I have no idea who I was racing, Luke. I didn't know you were supposed to keep up with that back then. We didn't take winter's circle pictures where I raced. We didn't celebrate it. Nobody was there when the final was run. But let's clarify. Got, Did you know the other racers at the time? Oh, yeah. I knew everybody there because sure. I had watched them race prior to me getting the race. And I, I can vaguely remember that it was, a, you know, an experienced guy. Um, right. Back then, you know, guys that won kind of won every week. It, it was not it wasn't different people in the winter circle a lot. And it was one of those deals. So I'm very hopeful I'm going to see a win light and I, I line up and I I make the run and my wind light comes on and it was the most incredible feeling I had ever had. I mean, uh, I'm, you know, here I am 15 years old. Uh, I, I'm, I'm on, I still ride the bus to school. So I'm going to ride the bus to school Monday and tell everybody that I won at Lassiter mountain dragway racing grown men, which was, pretty cool and you know it's it was certainly some brag on my part i didn't know you wasn't supposed to brag about it um but nonetheless i i get the wind light and you know it's like it's unbelievable it's finally happened it was, i'm in my third season of racing uh there were no buybacks then uh there wasn't any way to get back in the race uh, unless you just came back next week and raced uh, just a much different time you you know we made we probably made four or five time runs. You could make as many as you could get in, in the time frame in which they had time runs. And, uh, I probably made four or five every time I went. And then I would dial it about two faster than I had been all day and just hope that I didn't break out. You know, and if you were way ahead, you put the brakes on, but other than that, you, you just left her on the mat. And I was at the mercy of a 70 Chevy pickup and, and all of its consistency. Uh, so, you know, it was a difficult challenge, but somehow my wind light came on and I was hooked. And so I'm thinking, you know, now I'm going to get my race car, like right now, he's, he's just going to go buy me a race car. Cause I showed him I could win. And that's what he said. So, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, I, that's what I'm thinking. Um, and, and actually my dad, uh, did scrap and scrape and fight and work and do whatever he could to make that happen as quickly as he could. And it wasn't about a month or so later, he got me my first race car. It was a 72 Nova. Ironically, uh, it was blue. It wasn't red, unfortunately, but back then a blue 72 Nova was the most beautiful car on earth. And, um, this thing was really, really a pretty cool car, really pretty nice. And, um, I, I got to start racing it. It went, uh, mid nines. So I was, you know, in the, in the normal range of the car that I was racing against for the most part, uh, made me a better racer. Uh, certainly not, um, not having to get chased by some of these faster cars. A, a two second split is still difficult today, but I assure you when you had no idea what your car was running two two second split was bad hard back in the day it was really tough but nonetheless had moderate success in the car my first wind light in it was uh, pretty amazing um i uh i got that the the very uh first night that uh that i got the car and raced it um unfortunately uh, shortly thereafter uh, the motor blew up uh, dad again really scrapped hard and got the 
this thing together quickly. And it, it started out running halfway decent and then started slowing down. He's like, son, you sure you got your foot all the way on the gas? I'm like, well, I mean, I think so. I'm, I had it on the gas all the way the first couple of times when you said it was running good. And so I think I'm getting it all the way on the gas. You know, I was binding up and got beat. Uh, obviously, second round, again, no buyback. So brought the car home that Sunday. We got through with Sunday morning activities and dad said, uh, I'm going to take this thing up the road and and see um, see if I can figure out what's going on with it and make sure we don't have some kind of issue. So kind of live, you've been to the house, kind of live around a holler. So we're still living about where I live right now. And I hear dad uh, take it up the holler and turn around and it's open headers, of course, because it's a real race car, Luke. And uh, he stands on her pretty good and it's power glide. Uh, which was pretty rare to have back then, but this car came with a power glide. So it had the old gate style shifter on it. And um, he, I hear dad, and it just, it didn't go, it just went quiet. It was, it was just like you just shut it off. But I knew Bobby Joe Pennington didn't just shut it off. So he comes coasting in the driveway about eight or nine seconds later and a little smoke coming out from under the hood, Luke. And, uh, you know, I'm very concerned at this point because I'm, I'm just 15 years old and my dad's got my race car in his hands and it's smoking. He said, bud, I don't know what happened, but it wasn't good. Let's get this hood popped. So we popped the hood on the old 72 and there was a rod lying in the, like, you know, your battery was in the right front. And then there was that little pocket in the left front, right behind the headlight. There was a rod laying in that pocket. And I wasn't real smart, Luke, but I knew that that rod didn't work from that spot. Not where that was supposed to be. Yeah. No, sir. It was not where it was supposed to be. So the old 72 was binding up on me. And uh, she come apart on dad on the test run there up the road. Uh, but irregardless, uh, it was, uh, you know, we fixed it, made it faster, of course, because you don't just fix one and run the same thing you've been running. You got to go faster. That was still true in 1986. Uh, it was it's still true today. So um, got my first win under my belt when we got that car fixed. I got my first win in it. And, you know. I felt like a real racer from that point, Luke. I was, I was hooked. It was 1986, and you know, I, I did. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything different than what I was doing right then, uh, from then on. So, that that year in particular is what has led me to sitting here and telling you about 1986. It was pretty cool. As you uh, as you look back on that season, and you said like that you were hooked, right? That that set the hook. Is there one catalyzing moment that stood out? Like, was it that first win in the truck? Was it the first win in the Nova? Was it the first run in the Nova? Like, do you remember a time thinking like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life? Or did that ever even cross your mind at that point? Um, I'd never really envisioned myself doing it the rest of my life. Uh, you know, my, my dad, my dad was a hard working guy. He worked in the yard. He worked, he's a mechanic uh, by, by on his job, by trade. And then he would come home and work on cars all night for friends to where he would have the additional money to 
to take us and spend 50 or $60 at the racetrack on the weekend. And finally, he just basically didn't race himself. So me and my brother could race and, and he let us do that. So, you know, in my mind, this is a, it was a sport that was going to be way more expensive than I could ever afford. And, you know, I wasn't a real smart kid, uh, still ain't, and wasn't real talented, still ain't. So I, you know, I figured I'd just have kind of a dead end job and made up for all just, of it in looks though. <laughs> yes, no doubt about it. But I really didn't, didn't think I could race for a long time. Um, but the, I guess my, the, the one moment that I remember extremely well was um, I had my Nova already and the, the race at the races, they had like a heads up, they had heads up classes and it was 80, 90, 10, and 11.0. Now, I know that sounds weird to some of the listeners, but you got to understand it's 1986. So, a car that went 11 seconds in the eighth was very common. There were, there were plenty of those at the track. You know, out of 100 entries on Saturday night, they would have plenty of cars running 10, 11, 12, whatever. Um, so, I was racing my Nova and my dad said, hey, you know, the, the truck runs high tens. Um, why don't you run it? Because they run on a pro tree. He said, if you deep stage it, you, uh, you'll probably, you know, you'll do well. And uh, I was like, well, okay, well, I don't really know much about all that deep staging, but I'll try it. So I, I pull up there in a deep stage and make my time run. It, uh, you know, oh, my God, the tree was not great. It wasn't great at all. And, um, felt you like had I got five it. lights to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. You had, you, you did, you, you, you're just about, uh, your vision just about got blurred from all the light that come on all those incandescents, you know, you could have shined a hundred of those in somebody's face and, and couldn't have hurt them. But, uh, nonetheless, I, I really struggled trying to hit the tree. And then I, um, I figured out, that if I would roll all the way through, you know, because people like to burn out and all that, even back then, figured out if I'd roll all the way through the, the stage beams all the way through, turn every light out and back back into the deep stage and pull her down in low, that I could cut a light. And it took me a little while to figure that out, but I did that. I won the, the 11-0 class, you know, jumping in the truck and trying that. And really... From that point on, it just, it kind of clicked that there are many other ways to, to figure out how to win other than just pull up there, stage it, and take off. You know, you can, when things aren't going well, it taught me a little bit about how to adjust, and it certainly taught me a little bit about deep staging and how you can be a little more competitive that way and certainly became a deep stager a few years down the road. And that's what I did for many, many years. But um, I think that moment just in itself really showed me how you make adjustments and figure out how to be competitive when you, you just doing it the, the same way everybody else was doing it might not work. So that, that moment stood out for me a little bit. I love how you pinpointed that because I've always, I mean, there's a ton of things, don't get me wrong, that I love about our sport, like the people, the competition, the, the adrenaline rush, all of that, right? But I think 
what has kept me so intrigued for so long is the idea of outfoxing an opponent, so to speak, you know, like the, the strategy element of it, that it, you know, yes. uh, what's the Tommy Phillips quote that, you know, like, I think he was talking about super class racing, but it, it was basically saying that it's like playing chess at 170 miles an hour, right? That idea. And so I, and I always thought it was kind of an outlier for that, but to hear you say something similar, like that's, that's, I feel like there's a lot of things that, that appeal to me in the moment, but the lasting intrigue, I think that's at the top of my list. Yeah. I've been asked many times over the years, do you get excited about racing? And I said, you know, and you've been doing it as long as I have the, the thrill of just making a run isn't there anymore. Um, but the, the excitement or thrill of, besting my opponent remains as strong today as it's ever been. I, uh, I really get excited about trying to beat the person in the other lane. And certainly today, pretty much 85, 90% of the people at the track are capable of winning. Their equipment's great and they drive good and cars run dead on. So, you know, today, pretty much everybody in the other lane poses a threat uh, to, that you have to overcome. And, you know, I just, I enjoy that still today. Enjoy it. Yeah. hundred percent. You had warned me, um, pre-show that our, our lists were, were you, cause you're, you're privy to, to my notes and, and I have not seen yours. So you warned me that our, our lists are, are similar. So with that in mind, like my number three, uh, I, I, I followed you by about a decade because I'm about a decade younger than you are, Jed, the, but my my number three is similar. It's 1997. I appreciate I, you mentioning that, but yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're still the best looking podcast host I know. <laughs> Trying to sneak that in. Um, <laughs> so yeah, similar to to what you'd mentioned. I, I started the year uh, 15 years old. It was the the first year that I started at 15, and and I had a, a hardship driver's license, so I could race. I had some racing experience coming into that. Uh, it's been a couple of years in junior dragsters with some success, uh, had kind of drifted away from that, worked at the racetrack, took a job working the, at the racetrack, um, selling fuel on race days, mowing the grass during the week, during the summers, had saved up a, a, for a 14-year-old kid a fair amount of money and, and bought my first race car, which... Um, in coincidentally enough, it was not a 72. No, I couldn't afford a 72. Like they were in high demand. I had a 73, the crash bumpers, the <laughs> steel door beams, right? The real good looking car. Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and got an opportunity to, to race it. I think I've shared some of my, my stories from racing at the little outlaw track on the road when I was 14. This year, I actually get to race at, at the home track at, at Texas Raceway, which, you know, was sanctioned, had rules, all that good stuff. And it's where I grew up. So I'm excited about that. And I don't think that this was a conscious thought for me in the, in the moment necessarily, Judd, but like, I don't think this is unique to me. Like, like most, I think, um, you know, early high school kids like was struggling to find a place where I belonged. Right. Like I, I was always good in school, but I never really took to being like a, a good student, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and trying to find a place socially. Like I'd reached that point where I, I always thought I was pretty athletic as a kid. And then about high school time realized that, no, I'm, I'm pretty fat and slow. Like this, this is not, this is not the place for me. Right. <laughs> and, uh, was just trying to find somewhere where I, I fit in and, and felt, you know, like I belonged. 
And, and I think racing certainly provided that for me in that moment. Like I said, I don't think that was a conscious thought in that time, but when I look back Jed, at that specifically that season and how things just coincide to create this unbelievable opportunity that you don't realize how fortunate you are in the time. Like I fell in love with racing and I, and I was always around racing. You know, my, my father raced, who knows when my first trip to the track was right. Like I was a month old or, or, or less. And we had moved from California to, to Northern Texas, where I, I feel like I grew up. We moved there when I was eight years old and we're three miles away from Texas Raceway. So if my dad ever went racing without me, like I was upset had I found out about it, right? Like I, I wanted to be a part of it right from day sure. one. And when the opportunity came to race for myself, it just seemed like the natural thing. Like that's what I'd been waiting for, you know, my whole life to that point. But there in 1997, so Texas Raceway, which is, it was in Kennedale, which is, I went to school in Kennedale. And again, it's three miles from home. They raced every Saturday night. That was the regular bracket program. Well, that year was the only year that they ever did this, but that year they had a separate Thursday night standalone high school drags. So I was there every Thursday. I was there every Saturday. And more often than not, I was there on Wednesday night because they had like a Wednesday night test and tune and they would have a jackpot race. It was $5 to enter. It might get 20 cars. It might pay $70 to win. I ran it. I'm telling you three Wednesdays out of the month and not every week, but <clears throat> uh, often enough that I can, I can say with confidence, like we went a lot Paris drag strip, two hours, maybe two and a half hours to the Northeast race Friday nights. I'd go to Paris on Friday nights. Temple Academy Dragway, as it was called at the time, which has been under a, a number of different names since uh, Little River Raceway, I think is the, the most recent, about two hours south. They raced on Sundays. And it's not like I raced five days a week every week, but I raced five days a week, several weeks, and never less than two. And just had this old beat up Nova that at that time, I think went mid eights in the eighth mile, pump gas. I don't remember working on it all season. Like it was, it was the perfect car to do what I wanted to do. Right. I'm, I'm yes. sure I changed the, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't say I, I'm sure my father changed the oil at some point or, or showed me how to do that. But that was like the extent of the maintenance as best I can remember. So I, like 800 plus runs over the course of the year. And it seems ridiculous when I look back on that now, but I didn't want to do anything else. And when the opportunity came up, I'm like, well, I can go racing. And it was convenient and it was close. And I just went racing. And my father was a, a part of it a lot, maybe the year prior. And I think I, I, I'm, I'm kind of amazed when I look back at this now, because I don't think that I would have the foresight to let go the way he did. I think part of it was, was his job and, and where he had to be. And part of it was obviously seeing how into this I was and, and trusting, you know, I think our local racing community that I would stay out of trouble doing it, but he basically turned me loose. And I looked at that as such a rite of passage. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I can go wherever I want. You know, I'm 15. I turned 16 mid season, but like I'm driving two hours away to own a trailer solo. And how, like, I don't know that I would be ready to turn my kid loose at that, right? <laughs> at 15, uh, I don't know. I don't have a 15-year-old. You could speak to that better than I could, right? Yeah. Um, but it was really empowering um, when I look back on it. And and you, I think we all go through that phase, too, where I, I felt like it was kind of a rite of passage where 
um, I, I wanted to prove that I could do it by myself. And I, thankfully for me, especially looking back, I got over that pretty quickly. And I wanted to, to race with my dad, the, the, my father passed away when I was 20. So I didn't have a lot of time in between. Right. But 18, 19, 20, we were pretty much a team everywhere we went. So I'm glad I didn't miss out on that by having this bullheaded, you know, like I got to do this myself, but he, he allowed me to do that at an early age to where I I think I kind of got that fix. And it was, it was super empowering. So it's, uh, it's just interesting to look back on that time and how, how innocent it felt, how fun it was. And now it, like it wears me out to think about that. You had to go race five nights a week at three different racetracks. Like who in the world? Like that's not, that doesn't sound like that much fun, right? No, it sounds like a lot of work. Right. But in that moment, I got my old Suburban. I think when I went out of town, my dad would let me take his, his newer, like a Ford F-150 open trailer, drive the Nova on it, two straps and you're done. I have um, like a, I don't know, a two by six toolbox on the front. If I can't fix whatever's wrong in there, like it ain't getting fixed. It really just had fuel and water to spray down the radiator. Right. And it was just easy, you know, and, and, and fun. And I remember taking off to, to Paris on Friday nights and meeting up. This was probably part of my parents turning me loose too. I would, I would meet up with um, Tim Watson who, who passed away probably 10 years ago in a, in a bizarre on track, like tragic accident but he was a few years older than me and, and Chad Broom, who's several years older than me. And I think that was my parents' way of justifying like, okay, he's with these guys that are more responsible. Like, I'll just go ahead and say when we went out at 15, I was the responsible one. But it made, <laughs> They made my parents feel better that we were kind of rolling together. But those trips and those laughs, like that was such a good time. And then for whatever reason, you know, you kind of gravitate in, in herds for specific days of the week. When I would go to, to Temple on Sunday, my, my best friend through high school was a, a kid named JJ Endicott. He was a couple of years older than I was. And um, he would, we would go to Temple on Sundays. And usually we would trade out, like we would put his car on the trailer one week and we'd both drive it. And then we'd put my car on the trailer the next week and we'd both drive it. And some of those trips and the stuff that we would come up with, I just remember jamming to Led Zeppelin which was classic rock then, right? With JJ going <laughs> yeah, down even there. Then. And the one that sticks out in my mind, I don't know why some stories just resonate with you over time, but we go to Temple and it's literally every penny that we had to fill the truck up with gas, pay entries. And, and I don't think there was a buyback at that time, like you alluded to. So like, this is, we were spent when we get there and JJ made like the semifinals in my old Nova. So we have a check for $250, which is damn near life-changing money at that moment in our lives. Right. And, but we have a check like, and it's Sunday night. What are you going to do with a check? And I specifically remember rolling into McDonald's and pooling together the change from both of our pockets and the console of my truck to buy a four piece chicken nugget that we split and shared because that's all we had. And really, you know, we're, we're, we're laughing about it. Like, Hey man, you dropped a crumb. Don't be wasteful. You know, but it was just so much fun. And so it, it, towards the end of that season, or it, as I think back, it almost had to be at the end of that season, because quite frankly, I didn't, I just, I went to school and I raced. That was my life. So I didn't have time for anything else. I, I guess it was as racing began to wind down. I took um, my first job outside of the, the racetrack. Um, working for Nathan Martin at Cameron Racecars, And at that time, 
I say working, I'm 16 years old. I was sweeping the floors, right? And at that time, Tommy Phillips was working with Nathan. He was wiring cars. Nathan was doing all the fabrication. And 15-year-old me, I knew Tommy Phillips, but he was more of a God-like creature in my life at that time than he eventually would become a mentor. And, and now today is, is one of my best friends, right? But at that time, I'm like, this guy, is, he races for a living, you know? And we're sitting around the, um, you know, the, the lunch table at Cameron race cars one day. And he's like, well, you raced a lot this year, Luke. Like how, how, how good was your season? Cause he was going through, you know, he'd finished second in the world or whatever, you know, and kind of going through a season. I'm like, I thought I had a good year. I, he's, he's like, well, did you, how many final rounds did you make? It's like 41. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, I was in 40. How many did you win? It's a 24 out of 41. And I, I remember that to this day. And because he was just blown away. He's like, you were in 41 final rounds. Like, yeah, but you got to understand I was on Wednesday nights racing for 50 bucks and Thursdays and this high school deal. And then we do a little fun gamblers race. At the end of the, he's like, I don't care who you were racing. You were in 41 final rounds. That's unbelievable. And to hear Tommy Phillips tell 15 year old me that was such validation. Like, Oh, I, Tommy Phillips thinks I'm, I could be good at this. You know what I mean? So everybody didn't go to, to 41 final rounds, what you realized at that point, like that that's special. Yeah, I guess. Right. But to hear him say it really hammered it home. And so, I don't know, when I look back on that season, like just the innocence of it, the fun of it, the, the, the fact that, you know, really at that point in my life, it's probably the first real responsibility I'd had and the people involved, it just, it all, it all hooked me. And again, when I look back at that, um, it's it's pretty clear now in retrospect that I think the reason racing resonated so much and how I gravitated to it and was willing to just you know d- dedicate my life at that time to it was because ultimately I think I was looking for a place t- to fit in and then I felt like I belonged with that community at the racetrack and I'd like to think that a a portion of that is like I just had this innate passion for it from day one, because I, I, I do feel like, as I said before, just growing up where I grew up, when I grew up watching racers like Tommy and the Hefflers and the Lopez's and the Richardson's, even they moved away before I started racing, but there was, you got this sense that I don't think you got racing at a lot of tracks in the country that there was somewhere to, there was a trajectory within the sport. Like if you got good enough at it, you could do it for a living. Cause I'm watching these people do it for a living. And idolizing them. And, and so that, that seed had always been planted, but to be actually be out there, be doing it, be living it. And, um, and I just remember how much I enjoyed learning and competing and, and just wanted, I was racing five nights a week and was thinking about it when I was at school, like, gosh, I can't wait till the bell rings so I can get to the racetrack again. You know I mean? I just couldn't get enough. And, um, so I think that'll always stick with me. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, story and certainly a lot of similarities to to both of our year three or, or our third favorite, if you will. But the difference is you were racing with legends, Luke. I mean, you some of the people that raced around your area at that age uh, are were legendary then and still are today. Just like you're talking about a you know a, a conversation with Tommy Phillips and. He's like, yeah, I finished second in the world. At, when I was that age, I had no idea there was a world. 
I didn't know that there was anything bigger than what I was doing in racing. You know, I, I didn't hear about big events anywhere. There was no internet. There was no source that told you about racing. If you just didn't know it, you just didn't know it. So I guess my question to you is 97, you know, technology had come a long way from where I was that age, having that, that kind of influence around you. Did it, did it peg the, um, aspiration meter did you did you aspire to to do the things they were doing or was you just feeling like you know this i could do this run around here at paris and temple and everywhere the rest of my life kind of a combination of both because i loved what i was doing but i think in my mind there was always an aspiration like this was a this was a roadmap because i had seen scotty and edmund do it because i'd seen Tommy and the Hefflers do it. You know, like if you, you, if you have enough success here, you can level up. And if you have enough success there, you can level up. And eventually you could be Tommy Phillips. Like I, I remember thinking that at a very young age. And I, again, I think that is a direct result of being surrounded by people like that, that had paved the way. Really cool. So I, I can see that your racing path was starting to, to get molded into something at that age, which is really cool. Again, at, at, when I was the age in question here where you're 15, 16, uh, I had no idea. You know, wasn't sure if I could do it another year or another two years or what. But um, really cool to hear that that your racing path was starting to get some direction right there at such a young age, which I think has um, definitely led to a lot of your success. Good stuff. And so... Number three for me, 1997. For you, 1986. Where are you going from here? What's your second favorite racing season ever? So, you know, ironically, and this was not by design, uh, my, uh, my order is chronological. Um, but pretty much every year, not necessarily in terms of wind lights, but every year in racing to me, just seems to position me in a different place and just gets better for me. And 2003 is my next year, Luke. Um, I'm, I'm 31 at the beginning of 2003, going to turn 32, of course, in July, as I mentioned earlier. And, you know, <clears throat> I certainly don't mean to make this sound any other way than what it is, but I had won a lot of races. Uh, it's 2003. Uh, as I'd mentioned, I won my first race in 86. I'm, I'm 17 years down the road. So, you know, hopefully I have been able to turn on a wind light or two to keep me in racing that long. And through the 90s, um, I was winning 25 times a year. I raced two times a week. I raced every uh, Friday and Saturday or every Saturday and Sunday, according to what year it was. <clears throat> and uh, I was making around 30 to 35 finals each year. Um, you know, winning a couple hundred bucks to anywhere to a thousand, maybe on a, a really big race, uh, race a little bit, of everything I was again, actually the announcer through the nineties, the announcer at Lasher mountain dragway would, uh, I've still watched old VHS tapes where he would announce, uh, in, you know, in the right lane or whatever is Jared, I'll race anything Pennington. Cause I really would, uh, <clears throat> I was, I was, had become dependent on the $200. And I don't mean that I was counting on it. I mean that I had to have it. Uh, I bought, I made purchases 
in the early to mid nineties that, that I figured on what I was going to win at the races over a month and how I could pay that payment. So, you know, that was, uh, to me, it was not just, um, just racing. It was, a, it was a, a, a means of income that I was depending on. And, um, although I raced a little bit, of everything in 1994, I bought my 79 Malibu that most people prior to big red knows me as the guy that raced the red Malibu. Um, Got it in 94, drove it home from Gadsden, which is about an hour from Birmingham, as you know, and finally turned it into a full-blown race car by 96. And when I say a full-blown race car, I just mean I didn't drive it on the street anymore. Um, you know, all I did was race it. Uh, by the year 2000, uh, my brother had back-halved it for me. Uh, my brother Frank's a very talented guy, didn't, didn't fool with anything like that for money or for a living, but if you said, hey, I want to cut the back out of my Malibu where I can put big tires on it and I need to get the rear in there and all that. And he'd say, OK, we can do that. Um, you know, I can start on it in a couple of weeks and we should have it ready to go in about a month. And by George, that's about how it went. Uh, you got it back half for me. And here I am with a, with at the year 2000, my own big tire Malibu and I'm ready to take on the world. So um Fast forward back to the year in question is 2003, and I had traveled a little, Luke, but you know I hadn't, I hadn't really got out very far. I might have gone to Atlanta a time or two, but you know for the most part, traveling to me was going a couple of hours up the road. Um, and the year 2003 come along, I had run a couple of BNM races that were local. Uh, as you know, that was the series back in that time frame. You were there. Um, and I got a taste of racing on those bigger stages, and I, I really loved it. And I, I realized, you know, I can race with these guys. Uh, I mean, they're really good, but I'm really good. So I decided it was time to put myself to the test and travel around racing in the B&M series. <clears throat> Again, as you know, that was the series, Luke, and, and, and winning on that, stage in that series i mean it it just meant you know you were you were a damn good racer um people just gave you instant respect for for being able to compete at the bnm series and and turn on wind lights um and and there were a lot of big names in that series so uh, obviously i was nervous about the the time and financial commitment that you had to make to chase a series around the south because you know I, here i am i hear they go to bristol dragway and i ain't never even thought about going to bristol dragway and that's like six six and a half hours up the road so i have to be really committed to do this but nonetheless i, I obviously over uh, made that probably more of a, a mountain than it was it was probably more like a molehill but season started off strong in montgomery in that february and um, I, I had a good outing and positioned myself in the top 10 in points. And that might not sound like a lot, but there was probably, I don't know, 120 entries in my class. And you didn't have to pay into the points. You were just in the points. So I left there in the top 10 in that crowd and it was a large crowd and the, the best of the best was there. And 
you know, they come from a long way. So you knew the best of the best is going to be running the series. And uh, it got me pretty jacked up. And the, the success continued, you know, semi-regularly. I, I was finding myself getting a win here or getting to, you know, three or four, four cars there. And uh, pretty soon people were noticing and, and I was pretty jacked up. And the Bristol race was in April of that season. Uh, by the way, I have no idea how George Howard pulled that off for a few years going to Bristol in April. Uh, seems like it snows there a lot in April, but that's another story. <clears throat> so if we're there racing. Pull it off, it's George. Yeah. Yeah. They, it, they, uh, they tell me at Bristol, George raced one time not long after it snowed at Bristol. I mean, he raced that same day. But. <laughs> Would give me a just for the listener, like take me back the the footbreak crowd at the B and M series. We're talking at, in that in that time frame. Doyle K, Randall Roop, Rick Robertson, or some names that come to mind. Like who's the uh, Chris Chris Wiley? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, certainly some Alabama talent: Brooks Stevens, Lucas yeah. Bendall. Um, Man, they were, oh my goodness, that there was guys from Bowling Green area, from Nashville, just, uh, you know, it was hitter after hitter back in those days. Um, so certainly, uh, certainly a crowd that I had heard a lot about, some I had raced with locally here, but was just in awe of every time you pulled up there, it was, it was a world beater seemingly in the other lane, but unless, uh, another something that made that a special year for me in Bristol, you know, we raced on Friday, Saturday morning, George Howard called me to the tower. Now, you know, I knew George, I had raced with him around here, but uh, I'm getting called to the tower in Bristol. So this, uh, I don't really know what's going on here. I'm a little nervous, but I go up to the tower and he says, Hey, uh, I want you to do me a favor. And I was like, yes, sir. What, what do you need, George? And he said, I want you to teach a class of novice bracket racers at the rest of the B&M races this year. I've just signed a deal with GM Performance. We're going to call this GM Performance True Street. And he said, I want to help grow our sport. And I think one way we can do that is you teach people that come with racers to the track and they spend all this time watching all weekend and helping and charging batteries we're going to put them in street cars that are not part of the program. You couldn't, couldn't run anything that had been racing in the race. And uh, we're going to have you spend 30 minutes with them and the tower explaining racing and just having a discussion with them about how to go out here and compete. And, you know, he said, I know 30 minutes, not a long time, but he said, I just, I feel like you'll, you'll be able to relay to them what it takes to go out here and, and just, you know, have some fun and learn what we're doing. So we're going to give them two time runs on Sunday morning after the 30 minute session. And then we're just going to let them race round Robin until we're done and we get a winner. So I'm like, you know, you, that's, that's like the, the coolest thing anybody's ever asked me to do. So, I'm in. He's like, well, look, I know you're racing and you're top 10 in points and this is serious business. And, but you know, I'd appreciate it if you do this for me, George, I'm in. It's, it won't impact my racing at all. You know, we don't do this simultaneously. I do this and then I get to go back and race. I'm in. So we, uh, we, we do that 
the first time on that Sunday morning at Bristol. And it was amazing. You know, like there were, there were mamas, there were grandfathers, there was a little bit of everything that has their, their racer that they were there with has come back from a run and said, I broke out. Well, why'd you break out? I mean, why didn't you, why didn't you dial it right? Or, you know, I red lighted. Why'd you red light? You know, why can't you just go up there and cut the light? You know, they've all questioned somebody at some point about a, a failure they've had on the racetrack without a real understanding of how easy that is to, to happen to you. So they quickly figured out racing's hard, but we, we learned a lot. We did that at every race the rest of the year. Had a great time. Hank Schmidt, I know you remember the great Hank Schmidt, uh, was the announcer at the time. And uh, he, by the second time, the second race we did it, he had already nicknamed me the, prof the professor. Um, because obviously, because I taught the class and that stuck for quite a while. So that was pretty cool. Uh, the late, great Hank Schmidt, he's passed on now, has passed many years ago. But for him to give me that title was really cool and some of the most fun I had in that season, which uh, as we'll hear a little bit later on here was a, was a dream season for me. Um, it was, that was some of the fondest memories working with those, those uh, support people that, that come with someone else to the track. Uh, do you remember much of that at all? That, that GM performance, true street stuff. 100%. That, uh, that's, that would actually big jet. I, I believe 99% sure be the year that we met. Cause that was my first year in that part of the country. And I specifically, I don't know again, like why certain memories resonate, but I remember being at Hattiesburg, Mississippi and watching the, you, uh, operate the true street and watching the, the that whole perf performance and, and elimination, I think because I want to say Stephen Hughes and his his eventual wife. I think he had Lindsay driving yes. maybe for the first yes. time. Yeah, so I think that's why I was so locked into it. But I remember being really impressed with the program, the way that you were doing it. And I think she either shortly before or shortly thereafter was when we were introduced for the first time. So yeah, I, I was there for some of that anyway. Oh, cool stuff. Yeah, so it, it was it was as much fun as it looked like. But um, nonetheless, I, I I did that. I was uh, I was very competitive in the series, and uh, by the time the the series got to its last event in Atlanta, um, which I think you had an amazing performance there, if I remember correctly, that that last event of two thousand three. But anyway. Um, I had a, a three round lead coming in. Um, I had it over uh, Rick Robertson and uh, Rick was a, a, was a previous year's champion in the series. Um, so, you know, uh, certainly knew that there was a lot of talent back there chasing me and was hoping to, to fend him off and um, trying to hold on to that points lead. Just had me, you know, it had me a little bit on edge. I, this was, this was super big to me at the time. And I was, just really on edge for the last couple of races, but nonetheless, uh, you know, our good buddy bones had, a has, still has actually a beautiful 67 Camaro, a little stalker now. Um, and that was a, that was just a regular foot brake car at the time. And Lucas Bendall was racing it in foot brake there in Atlanta and bones came to me and he said, Hey, uh, you know, you seem a little uptight and, you know, I just, I think you need to relax a little bit. Just go do what you do and everything will be fine. He said, I think I got the remedy. This, this will take your mind off everything. Just have some fun. He said, jump in the old Camaro there and double with Bendall and have some fun. So, so you won't be, um, you know, 
just concentrating, focusing on trying to win the series, just race Camaro there. And it was a beautiful car. And I, I, I jumped at the opportunity to do it and took him up on his offer and was having a blast and racing it really good until, uh, which I know you'll remember well, I got pancaked at the, at the finish line by another driver and, um, I got hit just past the finish line. I was in the left lane. It, it hit the right front where the door and the fender come together on Bones Camaro and pushed me over into the left wall and just just destroyed the left side of that Camaro. And it was, uh, oh my God, it was the most sickening thing I had ever had happen on the racetrack. And here Bones invites me over, tells me race his car. Although I didn't wreck it, you know, you can imagine just being in it when that happens. I was sick. And, uh, you know, here I am in this points battle and still got to finish Saturday's race and, and still got Sunday to go. And But Bones wouldn't let me stay upset. He told me, look, as long as you're fine, we're going to get this fixed. Don't worry about it. It's, this kind of stuff happens. And he really put my mind at ease. And he said, well, he said, we'll get it straight. And actually, Ricky Jones ended up fixing the car up really nice and doing him a good job. And. Uh, I got back to my race, and fortunately, I managed to hold off Rick Robertson and maintain the points lead. And long story short, which I, I think I'm way past being able to shorten that, um, I won the BM Series Footbrake Championship in my first attempt at the series. Uh, it was a dream come true. And uh, outside of racing the BM Series, you know, with the GM Performance True Street and I was winning locally every time I went. I was just turning on wind lights and, you know, had a phenomenal year on, on some pretty big stages, if you will, for, for what I was used to. Uh, easily my best year racing to that point in life. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I did lose my mom December the 1st of 2003. So it, it definitely put a put a, uh, a rough spot in the memories of that year, but um, leading up to that date, I would come in late on Sundays a lot from races, get home 10, 11 o'clock at night. I lived right by my mom. Her light would be on. She would call me as I was you know, unloading or getting out of the truck and, you know, getting my bag and carrying it in the house. And she would call me and, you know, want to know how I did. And I got to tell her so many times that year, you know, mama won, uh, I won $2,000 or whatever. And, you know, I only spent 400 over the weekend. It was just, it was great. And she was so excited for me and so proud of me. And, um, I had, and not trying to make this story somber by any means, but I had uh, I had come in from Huntsville Dragways Turkey Trots, which was the last race of the year for me that same year. And I got in Sunday night. It was about 10 o'clock. Had a terrible outing, my worst outing of the year. I, go, I went to the, to the weekend thinking I was going to win everything they had. Never even won a dollar. And her light was on. I thought, Lord, have mercy. Please don't let mama call me because the last thing I want to do is, is all this good. I've told her all year. I don't want to let her down. And I know she would have cheered me on, but I just, so I don't want to let her down. I'll just, I'll talk to her tomorrow about it. And, uh, went to work the next day on Monday and, uh, got told, um, 
about mid-afternoon that I needed to go home. Um, my mom had been found in her uh, in her bedroom, passed away. She passed away in her sleep very peacefully. We should all be so lucky. But, um, you know, it definitely made that year uh, sickening for me because I had had so much to celebrate and, and just one devastating moment ruined it all. But when I look back on it now, years and years past down the road, uh, I'm, I feel very fortunate that pretty much the entire year I got to celebrate those great days with my mom. And she, she left this earth probably that night thinking if I wasn't home when, I, when she looked out the window before she laid down, that her baby boy was doing really good at the racetrack again. Uh, she obviously found out sometime later that that was not the case, but she probably thought I was doing real good, and she left this earth uh, very proud of me, and, and I'm very thankful for the, the memories that we got to share together in what was easily my best year on the racetrack. So, um, again, not trying to, to make any tears fall out of anybody's face or get too somber there, but uh, if you're, if your mom's still around, let her know you love her. And if you think you really don't want her to, to call you for whatever reason, change your mind, call her, or go see her or let her call you. Cause you could, uh, you could have some regret somewhere in there at some point, but, uh, still a wonderful year, Luke. And, um, uh, definitely by far still today not in terms of money one, but in terms of just on track performance and living up to the moment, probably my best year ever. I, uh, I remember that. Well, like I say, I, I moved to Alabama mid 2003. And so that was kind of my indoctrination to Southeastern bracket racing. I traveled out there a little bit, but, um, to see you, do that like my impression of you at the end of 03 is like that's the baddest dude I've ever seen you got to understand where I came from in that day and age like I know now geographically the, the playing field is much more level but specific to bottom bulb competition I've told this story before but I thought I was a pretty good we called it no electronics in Texas where I grew up I thought mm -hmm. I was a pretty good foot brake racer like I, I won a fair amount but I'm telling you like if I could go through the day and every light that I had started with a five like, you know, the 500 was perfect back then for all you youngins. If every light started with a five, like that was a good day. And I would probably win. Dang right. And I brought that game to Alabama and y'all just laughed me off the facility. Like the, if you're not 30 or better, you're not involved. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. I had a, a pretty rude awakening pretty quickly. And to watch you, I mean, and, and there were a handful of others, but specifically you dominate at that level at that, the way that you were in that time. Like, yeah, it was 100% impressive. And I'll, I'll circle back to, to, you kind of started that story talking, trying to explain to the, the younger listener, how big a deal the BNM series was in that day. I'll just sum it up real briefly. And, and again, this probably won't resonate with the younger listener either necessarily, but Mike Fuquay was the man at that time. I mean, you had Scotty, you had Peter. Yes. Fuquay was unbelievable and had a stretch there for three to five years where he was arguably the best. He was winning IHRA World Championships. He was winning BNM Series Championships. He was winning every bracket race he went to. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I was part of a conversation with Mike with a group of racers at 
an NHRA or IHRA event. And he was talking to someone that was like a three-time IHRA world champion, you know, a very good racer. And Mike just completely dismissed him. And he's like, until you win on the BM series, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> you know, and and that's that's really where it ranked in the minds of the best racers. Like it was the spot, it was the toughest competition. It was the toughest competition. And again, I'd gotten a little taste of it, uh, having gotten to race a couple of their events local to me or fairly local. And, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to get out there and do that, but I, I certainly learned a lot that year too. I knew that some of the tricks, but man, just that traveling with some, with so many different types of strategies out there in the other lane, I learned a lot that year about how to how to compete and how to disguise your game uh, when needed or when necessary and, and make yourself uh, not so transparent as to your style. And I, I used nitrous back then. So learned a lot of tricks. It was a super fun year. And, you know, I, I certainly had heard a lot about you. Um, you and Bones knew one another and, and we talked about you prior to me meeting you and, uh, you know, you had the Scotty Richardsons and uh, Bones at that time was was an, a very talented, hard to beat racer. So many, so many out there. So I, I certainly enjoyed watching you guys compete and and seeing how you, again, just use a lot of different tools in the toolbox and, and watching you guys race at such a high level. Certainly taught me a lot as well. I had a, I had a blast That's that year and would go back to it in a minute if uh, if i could yeah so my number two jed is from a, a similar era and i kind of want to go jed here and for my for my second favorite season i want to pick a whole decade i just i want to take the 2000s but if you're going to uh to, to ask me to select a year to catalyze all of it I'll, I'll take 2005 and i'll get there but let me preempt it a little bit with it was the summer of 2002 and I'll actually give myself a little bit of a pat on the back because at that time I'm 21 years old. I give myself a pat on the back for the perspective because that, the, that summer fell between my junior and senior years of college at Northwood university, again, living in North Texas. And I legitimately thought, and I think this is a, a thought that you should have, you know, at that age in life is this is probably the last, three months of my life where I, I don't have any responsibilities, right? Like I don't have to answer to anyone. I'm, I'm, I don't have a job. I'm not married. Like I can just like, this is my last year to be a, 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 a goofball. Little did I know I would be a goofball for two plus decades. Right. But at that time that, that made sense. Right. <laughs> so I made the conscious decision. Um, I, I had, like I say, it's a long story to get there, but at this point I I had a motorhome trailer, a dragster and my old, my 76 Nova, right. I'm 21 years old. And, uh, I just thought when the day that school lets out, like, I'm just going to leave home and go to the first race and I'm just going to go. And that tour was like 10 weeks. And I can't even now tell you exactly where I went. Like, I know it took me to St. Louis and Norwalk and um, Empire Dragway in New York. I was doing a lot of the IHRA stuff, um, big bracket races, just just crisscross the country. Didn't come home until uh, until it was time to start school again. And I don't think I had a ton of success on that tour, but I met so many people. I partnered, I buddied up with Bones for a lot of it. 
Um, I remember spending a week with him between Eddyville, Iowa and Stanton, Michigan, I think at Scotty Haas's house up near Chicago, like um, just having a blast. And so that was awesome. Right. And, and, and it kind of, I think gave me a taste and set the tone for ultimately what I wanted to do with that, that portion of my life, that decade of my life. Anyway, I fast forward a year, I graduate college. I ended up taking a job at Huntsville engine, Huntsville, Alabama, and moving from North Texas to, uh, to Alabama. And I did that for two years and it was an awesome experience. Great people between bones and Andy Anderson and Gary Revis at that time who owned the place and, um, and had the freedom and flexibility to race pretty much wherever I wanted to. And, but after two years of that, I just, it dawned on me that that's not what I wanted to do. Like, and I think ultimately for me, my, my father had instilled like this entrepreneurial gene. Like I just, I, I couldn't thrive working for anyone. And I struggled for a lot of years working to thrive, working with anyone period, right? <laughs> like something I feel like I'm doing a better job of now, but I was always very much kind of that solo mindset. So that 2005, that's the year that all of that catalyzed. I left Huntsville Engine. I was um, started my own business. I was doing marketing, like press releases, things of that nature. And so met some people through that and had this racing operation that I'd been successful with, but I, I had the fun things. And the, the most logical way for me to do that, I actually sold, I had two dragsters at one point, which I really couldn't afford at the time. And I think I went to sell one and I had offers on both of them. So I just sold them both. And I was like, that'll give me money to figure out what I'm doing. So bottom line, like I'm kind of quasi racing for a living. And all I've got is my Vega, the, the Vega that I have now. It was new to me at that point. And I end up kind of crisscrossing the country occasionally um, with nothing but the Vega, which wasn't really the, the tool for the job. Then everybody that's winning is winning in dragsters, but I'm, I'm wanting to run foot brake and I'm having fun with my Vega and just... Um, that that 2005 year the the best trip that I, the best story that i can tell from that is you mentioned lucas bendall earlier right <laughs> that you can tell yes <laughs> well i've got a lot of bendall stories that are not fit for this podcast <laughs> yeah. at all right but this one in particular so bendall and i we would run together quite a bit and he'd kind of gotten in this habit of, of calling me hey man where are you racing this way? And I'm going to give my best Bendall impression and it's going to, it's going to sound very country and it's not doing him any justice. Okay. Lucas is country. It wasn't bad. <laughs> so, hi man, where are you racing this weekend? And I had got caught up chasing the, this was the very first year, I believe of the, the drag series. And I said, I'm going to Milan, Michigan. Milan, what in the world? Right? Like, why are you going to Michigan? They got, four or five granders at Huntsville. I'm like, yeah, I'm in this point. So I'm going to go to Milan and it's like five grand on the top and a thousand on the bottom. How far away is that? This and that and the other. Well, it ends up. I said, once you come with me, we'll double my Vega in foot brake. And I'll just, I'll find somebody that will loan me a dragster to run super pro. Okay. okay. That, that sounds like fun. I'll go with you. And uh, then I, at some point I, I tell him that it's quarter mile and he freaks out because he's never run quarter mile in his life. And he's like, listen, man, you mean to tell me that we're going to drive to Michigan and we're going to double your Vega quarter mile. <laughs> I said, yeah, that thing's going to blow up. It's not that big a deal. Like it'd be fine. Right. So <clears throat> long story short, it's the, the last day at Milan and we're both in relatively early in the race, but enough that you kind of got a hot lap, you know, it's probably third, fourth round. 
And let's say it's fourth round. I win, come back to the lanes and Lucas hops in it and he pulls to the water and I'm sitting on the guardrail, left lane, Milan dragway. <clears throat> and Lucas starts his burnout and he gets about to the top end of low gear. And it's similar to the story of your dad coasting down the hill with the, the 72, Jed. It just quit. Not like, hmm, just quit. Hmm. That's probably not good. And the line of a lifetime. I hop off the wall, walk over to the car, and Lucas kicks the door open, says, man, I promise I put gas in it. I go, what's that got to do with anything? I'm just telling you, I don't think that's the problem. And that bitch blew up. So as, as advertised, I mean, he told me a few days prior, <laughs> we're going to double that thing quarter mile. It's going to blow up. It blew he up. did tell you. It, <laughs> but that, that, that time frame where I, I, I'm scrapping together money, not really sure what I'm going to do with my life, racing my Vega and trying to figure that out, but really kind of doing it for fun more than anything. And one of the early relationships with my marketing company was with uh, Mark Horton former IHI world champion who was starting, launching this little business from a shop called American Race Cars. And so we, we are helping Mark get this thing off of the ground and, and letting people know that he's out there. And he's like, hey, whenever you're ready, you know, to get in another dragster, just let me know, right? We'll, we'll build you one. I, I want to build your car. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not I'm not ready for that at all. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I can't afford to do that right now. And uh, he persists on for a couple of months and uh, I kind of let it drop. Well, later in that year, he's like, are you ready for a dragster yet? I've got one about done. And I said, Mark, I can't afford a dragster. He said, I didn't ask you if you were ready to buy a dragster. I asked if you were ready for a dragster. And I'm like, whoa, 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 let's, let's talk. Right. <laughs> and that's how I, basically my first two, maybe three American cars, they were Mark's cars. And no one knew that at the time. I, I don't think he would be upset with me saying that now that there was no way that I could afford to, to, to race at that level at that time without Mark Horton. And he basically for the bill, for, it worked out well for him too. Like he got a cut of winnings and I was racing a lot and winning a lot. Um, but had he not done that, like, I don't, Eventually, I think I would have gotten back into it, but how that catalyzed my opportunities, you know, my, my eventual ascent in the sport, like, I don't think you could overstate it. So that in late that season, I got my first American car, which was like the sixth car that ever came off the jig there. And, uh, and obviously that established a relationship that I've had ever since. It's, it's one of many reasons that I don't, if I ever get another dragster, it, it will be one of those, right? Um, so yeah, just, it's amazing when you look back and see how things came together and how, if any one of those little dominoes fell in a different direction, you're in, you're in a whole different place now. It's, it's pretty incredible, but yeah, 2005. And that really then set the stage, like 2006 through 2009 was the, the, the glory years, if you will, right. Like uh, of, of my career in terms of, it didn't look very glorious. <laughs> you remember a lot of this, Jed, it was a, it was a, F-350 with 400,000 miles on it and a fender hanging off the side and a, a, a living quarters trailer that cost less money than a nice open trailer, I think, um, with with a, a nice American dragster that I couldn't afford and a beat to hell Vega that doubled as a center support underneath of it. And all across the country, barnstorming week after week, meeting people like, 
Like th- those times I, I, there's no way I don't have any interest in doing it like that today, but man, it, it fit exactly what I wanted to do at that time. And none of that would have happened. Like Oh, five was the year I selected because that kind of catalyzed all of that. Yeah, man. What a great year, Luke. I remember pieces of that and pieces of this story, which is really cool. Obviously I remember you being at Huntsville engine. I became a customer there in 2003 and I uh, can remember calling up there and, you know, you would be the guy that answered the phone a lot of times. You were you were there to sell engines, so obviously you'd answer the incoming calls and try to do that. And uh, you and I got to got to know each other fairly well. You you mentioned in your story the the new to me Vega. Um, I remember the Vega at that time. I don't think most can even get close to comprehending what that car came from to what it is today. Uh, you wouldn't believe it's the same car, but it does have the same seat cover. So that's really cool. Um, but I can remember there was a race you were taking the dragster to somewhere you were going to be gone somewhere or you, for whatever reason, you were going to be out of town. There was a pretty good race at Huntsville where you couldn't make like the Friday, the Friday portion of it, for whatever reason, you were going to, you were going to be there the rest of the weekend, or maybe Adam was going to be there and he was going to drive it. But you said, Hey, I want you to drive my Vega Friday. Um, you know, just, um, whatever's going to happen the rest of the weekend, but I need somebody to run it on Friday. So it's, it's going to be sitting there. It, it'll already be parked there for you and need you to run it. And I was like, Luke, you know, the, I'm, I'm in, of course, I was excited about it. I was going to get to race Luke Bogacki's Vega. And, you know, I, I, I indicated that to you and you was like, Hey, you know, don't, you know, don't get excited. Um, <laughs> uh, this, this ain't, you know, my Malibu was pretty clean and pretty nice. And then by that time I had gotten the Nova. So you said, this ain't what you typically race. Okay. He's like, uh, just, you know, she's, she's a little rough around the edges, but it's good. You said, it's real good. Don't worry. It's going to run what it's supposed to run. It's going to do you a good job, but uh, go race it. And I was like, okay, so we we're getting closer to that day. And the, the, the forecast wasn't looking good for Friday. And uh, I was like, Hey man, I know, um, you know, you said the car is going to be sitting there, but I, it looks like it's pretty much going to rain Friday. So we'll be out on that. I said, so don't worry about, you know, leaving it for me. We'll probably only get to race Saturday and Sunday anyway. And he was like, Oh, it, it's already there. It's, it's outside. Um, it's okay. If it gets rained on, it'd be all right. Don't worry about it. It's you, and I remember you telling me the Vega don't just get rained on, it gets rained in. <laughs> so, you know, just take you something, dry the seat out uh, after the, if it quits raining where y'all can race. And I was like, this is unbelievable. So didn't get to race it. Unfortunately, it did rain out that day and whomever was coming along to, to race it the rest of the weekend did so. But uh, the Vega, it was hard to believe that car was ever new. It looked like it was was built used uh, at that time, but it is an unbelievable work of art today. And uh, I know you've got befores and afters and uh, that, that, that should be something you'll cherish forever because that is, that, that car is unbelievable, especially in comparison to what it was when you got it. The car was a modified eliminator car in 1974. I mean, it's almost half a century old and it's been a race car its entire life. So yeah, it had been, it had been road hard and put up wet when I got it. Um, And I didn't do it any favors for 10 plus years. So it was, it was due and, uh, and well-deserving of its, uh, of its refurbishing and facelift. (laughs) It had earned it. 
Yeah, it definitely did. And it, it, uh, it got a, a hell of a, a redo for sure, a refurb. So, all right, Luke, um, I'm going to make this one much shorter. Uh, I struggled with the, coming up with the final year. Uh, and it did run in chronological order. Again, that was uh, not by design, but uh, I've had some really fun years on the racetrack. Um, 2007, 2006 is where the, the WFC was born at, uh, at the Applebee's in Meridian, Mississippi, with Steve and I discussing uh, foot brake races. And then he told me, yeah, let's build this race. And then you and I put it on. I told him he was crazy. And 2007, we actually had that first race, which you runnered up the, that 50 grander to Scotty. That was a uh, pretty awesome to see two legends in the sport compete at, at our first event for the, the big prize. Um, uh, later in 2007 at the, at the foot brake 20 grander in Piedmont, which was, uh, the pinnacle of foot brake racing for many years, I, I was able to win that race. So just a, an amazing year there in seven, but it, it, as the number that's years kept clicking in my head, it got me to the, the most recent one that we've completed and that's 2021. Um, we're all victims of the, the here and now, and, you know, our, our memories are shorter. So we, we tend to not be able to think back as far as clearly but this one really wasn't a product of that. Um, as most people know, I was on the road announcing a lot of the big money bracket races from 2010 until the end of 2020. And I had an absolute blast that, you know, put me on the map, so to speak. You know, at least that's the way I feel. And um, I had a had a wonderful time and was given a lot of wonderful opportunities to do some really cool things in racing. But I was missing being home with the family and my friends. And, you know, I, I was just burnt out, really, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. And it was not anyone's fault but my own, just was tired. And um, I... I I'd spent pretty much all of my vacation time for those years working events and I didn't get to take real vacations and just the life people were living, you know, that to them, I was living the best life, but I wasn't living my best life. I wasn't getting to do the things that I really wanted to do. So the only thing that actually kept me out there that long was JJ getting to do it with me and announced to, and he got pretty darn good at it. I'd say, and that's uh, certainly a, a proud father talking uh, it was a, it was a ton of fun to watch him do it on those stages, and he thoroughly enjoyed it as well. So, you know, all in all, it was I got to where I was doing it as much for him as I was for anything. So, made the extremely difficult decision to retire from announcing uh, racing events in 2021, and there was some reasoning behind that. Again, I was tired, and you know, JJ was ready to start racing big cars. Um, I've got a couple of junior dragsters that my niece and nephew race. Uh, my wife has the aforementioned uh, 79 Malibu that, uh, that I won the B&M series with in 2003 that I bought in 1994. Uh, that is now her race car. We purchased it back from Nick Ross last year and um, she's done some testing, but uh, looking forward to seeing her get to do more and you know, I got um, got to race around home. Uh, got to take a family vacation. 
we actually took that together, by the way, on accident, but it was <laughs> a good <did>. time. <laughs> that was a really good time. Um, so, you know, it's um, it, it was a year where I was able to come back home and really just didn't have any race that I had to go to other than the two that I promote. And that was quite a bit different for me. You know, I, I was committed to a lot of races and people can feel how they want to feel. But when you are committed, when you have to go, it it's, you know, it's hard to fit it in sometimes. It really is. It's when, you know, we all have events that we say, well, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And you know, Tuesday, it's like, you know what? It just ain't working out. I ain't going. Well, I didn't have that choice. I was committed to these, and that just makes it a little bit more difficult. Edmund so, Richardson told me years ago, Jed, and I, it made no sense to me at that time. I mean, we're talking 15 years ago, but Edmund looked me in the eye and said, there is no worse feeling than being at the place, the racetrack, that you've that's the only place you've wanted to be all your life, right? Like that there, there's no worse feeling than being at the racetrack and wanting to be anywhere else. Like that's the last place that you want to be or, or, or not loving to be there. And I thought that's crazy. I'd never. And then I, I experienced exactly what you're talking about. And, and it was like the old wise man, you know, like, Oh, Biggie, Biggie had a point. I get it. Yeah. 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 It makes total sense. So, so I'm at home now, uh, retired from that. I must say it's been amazing uh, being home, enjoying racing with the kids and Jenny Mo. And uh, like I said, she didn't get to race competitively last year, but we're, we're hopeful this year will be different. And JJ got to race a pretty good bit. My little Malibu station wagon, it wasn't a very good and hot rod for him, but he made the best of it. Didn't, didn't get to win a race, but got close a couple of times. Um, now we've purchased his first real race truck. Uh, that uh, when we bought the uh, S10 from Seth Lancaster and, you know, Adam Davis put that together for us and did a really good job and made it that nice and neat and, and good. And JJ got to race it at the final race of last year. Uh, he had a pretty good outing and it's got us excited for 2022. I'm, I'm really, uh, I did a, a posted on something. I never do these things, but uh, there was a thing on Facebook yesterday and it was actually last night as I was drowning my sorrows in the national championship game. And he said, what is your number one racing goal or something for 2022? And mine is to see JJ get that first win. I'm, I'm you know, I'm really optimistic about uh, where he is in racing and he's going to need to improve his game a little bit and get a little luck. But I, I know that's going to happen for him, both of them. And, and he's going to, get that first win next year. So looking forward to that. My, my niece, Kylie Grace, uh, drove our little car and she's learning how to race and doing good job. She's stepping up her game next year with a new engine and she's going to be more competitive. My nephew, Cade, drove my big car last year. He got some wins under his belt, which was awesome to see. And he's got us optimistic and excited about next year. So um, overall, you know, just watching the kids race, me getting a race at home more, going on vacation, um, you know, with the family and, and my, my main man, Luke Bogacki, and seeing my wife prepare for racing and the car that I won that um, championship that I talked about in and being available, available, excuse me, to be at more functions and events with the family and just made 2021, honestly, the best one yet. Uh, I didn't, didn't turn on near as many wind lights as I wanted to or needed to. But it just, 
it didn't hurt nearly as bad as I thought it would because I just had so much good around me all year. Um, you know, at those big races, I, when I would get my head caved in in an important round, I had to go straight to the tower and talk about it and and just get over it and, and watch people race. And, you know, that stuff's just hard. Now, when I get my head caved in, I got family around me um, loving on, on me and telling me it's fine. We'll get them next week or next time or, you know, whatever. And we, uh, we just enjoy hanging out and watching everybody else in our group race. And, you know, it's kind of come full circle. This is who I was 35 years ago, racing with family on Saturday night around the house and, um, didn't live and die by the wind light. Um, and was just kind of oblivious to, to anything else that was happening in the world uh, in racing or anything else just for my little stint on Saturday night just to go race and have fun and it's kind of where I'm at today really all I care about when I go to the races is what's happening around me and what the, the kids are doing and the wife's doing and my friends and you know it's it's not nearly uh, old school as it was in 1986 but it kind of is in the same way and just enjoyed 2021 thoroughly, Luke. It's, it's been a blast and I can't wait for 2022. You warned me coming in that uh, there were a lot of similarities in our lists. Um, my favorite season is also this past season. And for many of the same reasons, Big Jed, like you use the term full circle, like that's that's at the top of my list. I I, I fell in love with our sport racing with my dad and this year was the first year i got to race not only with my wife right we've been racing together for several years but now with my son gary and and to to do that to just be this little traveling herd that we've been right that it's it's the four of us right and it, i don't want to say it's the four of us against the world but it's it's you know we're, we're very tight-knit in in our in our in our family and racing is a big big part of that much like it was in in my youth and so to to get my oldest boy racing and to see him have some immediate success. And my wife had a successful season. I uh, won a big race up in Michigan. Like I think the best way I can say it similar to what you said, Jed, maybe the, the, the situations are a little bit different, but racing was, was fun again, like, and, and probably the most fun that I've ever had for completely different reasons. Right. And, um, and it, it's funny because I get a lot of questions about this, probably as much within this is bracket racing elite as outside of it, because they, those guys know like 2020 was rough. It was rough for all of us on a lot of levels, but it was rough for me on the racetrack. Like it was without question, the, the least successful season that I've ever had racing. And I could justify that to a lot of things. We didn't get to race as much. We built two new cars, but bottom line was. I didn't want to race like all year. Right. And that, I don't think that it ever happened since I started. And, um, and I actually kind of, I didn't take that particularly hard. Like I kind of accepted it just in terms of, okay, like I've had a heck of a run in this sport, like any far exceeded anything I'd ever imagined. And I'm at a, a different place in life. Like I don't eat, sleep, leave, breathe, the competition end of this, like I have for basically my entire adult life. And if that means that I'm not having success at the rate that I'm accustomed to, like, 
I'll accept that because there are there there are other priorities in my life. Really, for the first time in my life, if I'm going to be completely honest, and and if that's the trade off, like cool. And so we really took a step back as a family, my wife and I, and said, "Hey, if if we're do we even want to race? And if we are, it only makes sense." If we're going to make it fun, and this wasn't just a catalyzed in, in 2021 thing, this has probably been going back a couple of years, but the big question for us was, okay, well, how do we, how do we make it fun? How do we take some of the, the, the pressure off and our racing operation? I know it doesn't look like it when you look back on 2021, cause we got caught up in the NHRA chase and, and we raced a lot. We raced more than we have in probably five or six years. Um, but every step along the way, it was a, a week to week decision. Like, do we feel like going racing this weekend? Is it fun? And it, and it kept being fun. And it, so we wanted to keep going. Right. And I think just a lot of the, the internal pressure is gone. I met a, I'm fortunate enough to be at a place in life where I'm, I'm not certainly not racing for a living, not dependent on my racing turning a profit, like obviously winning money is better than not winning money, but that's a bonus <laughs> at this point. Right. And, and so I'm not dependent on success for income, whether it's direct prize money or, you know, sponsorship wise, like I don't have any marketing partners that are, Hey, you've, you've got to go win to, or even not that that was ever a, a verbally stated thing in the past, but you feel that pressure when you're, when you're representing, you know, companies. And maybe it's just, I don't know if it's age or the benefit of the, the success that I've had, but I kind of reached this point where like, I don't, I don't feel like I've got anything to prove to, to, to anyone and probably most importantly myself. Right. And um, just like, if I'm going to get a little bit deep on you, Jed, just from an existential standpoint, I feel... I don't think I ever internalized this as I went along, but now as I reflect back, I mentioned earlier that I lost my father in 2001, I was 20 years old. And for the last two to three years of his life specifically, um, like he shared the, the, the vision that I had for my career in racing, if you will, like that wasn't my thing. That was our thing. And I feel like I spent, the, the next 20 years, give or take, trying to, to live up to that vision, to, to make my father proud. You know what I mean? Like there, there was, that was, they say there's the, um, the, the iron that, that hardens steel or the fire that hardens steel. Like that was it for me. That was the catalyst. Like that was always kind of the unspoken subconscious driving force. Right. And it served me, it drove me, but over time it also, like wore me down. Like, cause you'd never, you never feel like you get there, right. No matter how much success you have or, or how, how, how good you feel about it or, or what you feel like your external reputation is like whatever. And it's just in recent years that I, I feel like I've taken a deeper look at like, well, what do, what do I want out of, out of racing? What do I want for life? What ultimately, if I'm honest with myself, what would my father want for me, you know, today and kind of turning that corner and that, that, acceptance. And I think the, the going through not having a great season in 2020 and just accepting it, like, I really think that that laid the, the, the framework, not only for really enjoying racing, but I think on some level that acceptance kind of catalyzed having success again, because I wasn't pushing for it. Like I wasn't driving for it. 
And um, it, it all came together in this crazy way because I feel like 2021 was the, our most fun season ever. And I really believe it would have been our most fun season ever if I hadn't had any success, but we had tremendous success and win the world championship. Right. And so it's easy to kind of zoom out from that and say, well, yeah, of course, 2021 was a, it was one of your favorite seasons. Like you, you want everything. Right. And, uh, but I would, I would argue that it's the complete reverse. Like, I don't think racing is fun at this point in my life because I'm winning. Like I would argue that I'm having some success because we're having so much fun. And then the cherry on the top of it all was, was finishing the season in Montgomery and, and winning the last day at the, at the great American million. Like we talked about that at length shortly after it happened, but the sense of validation from that just personally, a, I did it in a, in a, in a buggy that like, it's not, we talked about it at the time. Like you're just not supposed to, <laughs> to win a race like that in that, in, in a car like that, but the car absolutely carried me. Like it was unbelievable, but just the validation of not only winning an event like that in a, in a car that you wouldn't typically expect to win an event like that, but the fact that I feel like I still identify as a, as a big dollar bracket racer, but I don't go to a lot of them. And when I do go, I feel like the big dollar bracket racers look at me as, oh, there's that NHRA guy coming in here. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like, hey, that's, this is, this was my thing. And in, in, in truth, <laughs> I hadn't won a, a big dollar bracket race in three, four years, you know? So to, to be able to kind of, I don't want to say validate because there was nothing that needed to happen to validate my, my, my season in my eyes, but to, to be able to win on that stage in a little bit, you know, different form of competition than what we've traditionally been doing and, and to feel like it's one race and, you know, thousands of a second go either way. It doesn't really mean anything, but to feel like, yeah, okay. Like I can still do that. Like that's pretty cool. Right. And, and to cop, tap off the season, it was the absolute cherry on top. So you mix all of that together and I'm, I'm right with you. I feel like we're waxing poetic and like, oh, the greatest time is right now. But for me, yeah, I think the most fun I've ever had racing and probably my favorite season of racing was the last season. Well, it does seem that way from the outside looking in and, and certainly, uh, you know, what we get to talk a fair amount and what I have gotten to, to discuss with you on air and off air where, you know, sometimes off air, we, we might be a little more open about certain subjects you have not seemed to to care is a is such an odd word to use because it can be misused but you just haven't seemed to to let any of that pressure build up on you or don't don't let it bother you you know when we've talked about the possibility of you winning this championship as it become more and more obvious that you were going to be a major player in the in the hunt and when it became obvious you were going to win you know it just it wasn't it just didn't feel like that's something that, that got any kind of monkey off your back or any of that stuff. It just, it felt like you, you just felt fortunate that you were able to get out there and compete and that you competed at your best level and it worked out. And I don't know, it, it all just seemed to be uh, not necessarily business as usual, but it, it certainly seemed to be um, less pressurized as you know, you, you put that, you know, the pressure isn't, the internal pressure's gone. Um, you certainly didn't seem to let any of that bother you or 
cause you to um, to get outside of your your normal demeanor attitude. Just again, we don't get to talk every day, but uh, we we talk pretty candid off uh, air sometimes. And I don't know, you just seem really comfortable where you are in life, Luke. Business is good. I know your your product that you have put. You know, people can can feel any way they want to feel about this is bracket racing. This is bracket racing elite. But I know having been on the the backside of that, how hard you work at it, how much you put into it, how much you care about it and how much you want to improve uh, racing for the people that trust you to do that. And um, I know this is not a commercial for this is bracket racing elite, but it's a special program. And uh, it's certainly something that you've built into a, a great, a great business and not only just a good business for you, it's damn good for the people that participate in it. And, uh, and I know they're all appreciative of the effort that you put in. So all in all, man, looks like life's really good for you. And it's understandable why 2021 ranks so high because um, it seems like the years just get better for you as they click along. I appreciate all of that, Jed. And same, like, I, I think it's, uh, I don't, maybe I'm, maybe I'm off base. I don't think if you pulled many racers, they would pinpoint the the last year of, of racing. And, and we both did like, uh, maybe we're just eternal optimists, but I feel like both of our lives are uh, headed in this positive trajectory right now. So it's pretty cool stuff. I, I, I'm interested to hear your take, like broadly, as, as you kind of look back on this exercise, Jed, like the years that, that stand out for me, for the most part, like aren't for the accomplishments, like what I had, uh, what I had earmarked outside of this past 2021 season, they were kind of the, the, I don't know, they weren't my standout seasons in terms of results. And I think part of that is maybe proof positive that it, it, it is more about the process, you know, than the results. I know that's kind of a cliche. And the other, I guess, again, cliche is that when I look back, at least for me, like, the struggle is what I look back on probably with the greatest reverence, right? Like there's a, uh, there's a, there's a deep Victor Frankl thought there somewhere. And like, you know, in, in retrospect, the, the years of struggle will, will leave you as the, the, the most resonant or something along those lines, right? I'm obviously paraphrasing, paraphrasing, but, um, it's funny. Like, I think for all of us internally, like the, the, the time of struggle, the years of struggle, like they're our favorite parts of the story. You know, I, I to interview, not that I'm trying to, to, to compare us to Tiger Woods or, or Michael Jordan or something like that, but if you interview any athlete, they're not going to tell you about hoisting the championship. They're going to tell you about getting cut from the high school team, you know, and, and what that catalyzed. Right. And I, and, but I, I think more so than that, like, cause some of that is a, is a motivation as a driving factor. I find that I, those stories are more fun to tell. Like I can talk about them with, rev, rev, with uh, reverence and be like, yeah, like whatever it, it is that, that you're going through from a racing standpoint, I've been there. You know? <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. I've got several of those, you know, as I, as I sit back and reminisce to, to put this together, you know, several mm -hmm. of those years that, that, uh, I wanted to put on there, but I, I couldn't get outside of a, a single incident or, uh, you know, something, something that was making that year stand out was just, right. you know, a single day at the track or a single decision I made. So, um, I wanted this to be more about seasons and, 
what was accomplished or just what happened, not necessarily accomplishments, but what happened from beginning to end. And, and that's the, the ones that I picked, but, you know, 2004 was, uh, was a year that I stepped on my racing program, made my car faster and it didn't like it. It wasn't set up to go faster, struggled, um, struggled, got my brains beat out until July when I finally decided, well, if I want to go faster, you got to have a car that'll go faster. So July, 2004, I bought my Nova and I was going, you know, six thirties, as opposed to now six nineties and seven O's. And, um, I didn't have a good spot on the tree. I didn't like the closure rate. It was just weird all the way around. So I slowed it down to 670s with a throttle stop under the carburetor so I could deep stage it. And it was, you know, kind of stupid. But now I was overpowered. I mean, I was underpowered and overtired over chassis as opposed to the, the reverse and, you know, just things like that just change your your racing life just little decisions like that uh you know and i know that's you know not a not a real big deal but just stuff like that was popping in my head like you know all these little instances over the years of decisions i've made but all these little forks in the road yeah that lead you to where you are now right so many of those and um you know this this uh, podcast is just another product of uh the awesome positions I've been put in in racing and you know uh, I don't even know what was it five years ago I guess it was when you said uh, hey I'm going to do a podcast and I didn't even know what that was but you said uh, you want to do it with me and uh, I said sure yeah I'd love to I don't even know what a podcast is but <laughs> if Luke asked me do I want to do something with him of course I do so and uh, this has been pretty cool and hopefully the listeners enjoyed just taking a peek and, and listening in to some years that were pretty special for us. You, like you say, you've been doing this 30 or so years. I've been doing it, you know, a little more than that. And a lot of great seasons and memories within our, uh, our racing journey. But um, hopefully the listeners got to know us just a little bit better and, and enjoyed what we put out there tonight. It was a lot of fun. I certainly enjoyed it. Luke, I enjoyed listening to, to the seasons that, that rang in your memory uh, as special seasons that that you'd want to discuss on the show. Likewise, as my uh, as my old buddy uh, Bubba Stevenson would say, uh, I've been knowing you, Jed, for uh, 20, almost 20 years at this point. And uh, I learned some things tonight that I didn't know. So I, uh, I absolutely I, I enjoyed uh, going through that, hearing your uh, your uh, summary of, uh, of some of the best years of your racing career. It's been fun stuff. Uh, but with that said, we are shoot an hour and a half into this quick off season show. Um, <laughs> I don't have anything more to say. You want to wrap this up? Yeah, that uh, pretty much does it for us, guys. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. Uh, tell us about your favorite racing season. You know, you can just pick one and, and tell us why. Put it out there on the Sportsman Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear it, see it, read it, and uh, maybe even something that, that we can mention on the show here or there. So put that out there for us. Let us hear from you. Um, and if you like to tweet, uh, certainly tweet, uh, Luke or myself, any of your thoughts on the show or anything in racing in general, we'd love to hear that as well. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Luke, I don't know that you're going to have shouts, but, uh, if you got anything, tell me and we'll, we'll work that in real quick. Shouts to the Pontiac Grandville, yeah. maybe the greatest Pontiac ever built. 
Shouts to 72 slash 73 Novas. I am partial to the crash bumpers and the steel door beams. Did I ever tell you we torched the door beams out of my 73 Nova because they weighed like 80 pounds each? Yeah, they were heavy. This was part of my my father's uh, uh, weight loss pro- program. This is probably after the year that made uh, made the third favorite year on, on my list. And um, the plan was that we were going to paint it. We didn't get to that. So oh. you torch these out from the inside, but obviously it blistered the paint. Like uh, the paint was actually gone for the yes. two areas that we had torched it. So yeah, I, I'll have to throw this up on the uh, Sports and Drag Racing Facebook page. Pictures of that car in that time frame, special, special, Jed. The Pooh Brown Nova <laughs> with some rust spots on it from when we torched out the door beams. I'm At one sure point it, it had blue wheels. Yeah, it was, it was good stuff, man. Can't wait to Shouts see it. to JJ Endicott, Tim Watson, Chad Broom, and everyone else from my youth. I think those were the ones that I specifically mentioned. Shouts to Lucas Bendall. I think the last time I talked to Lucas, he may have been lying to me. He said he listened to this fairly uh, um, regularly. So hopefully he got a chuckle out of my oh, awesome. Lucas Bendall impression. <laughs> I'm sure he did. And it was pretty darn good. Uh, people have no idea, but it was pretty darn good. Real quick, Lucas did have a wonderful line that the year, obviously we were doubling Bones Camaro and he waited till the next morning. And, uh, you know, I came over there the next morning to look at the car and it was, I mean, it was beat to hell. Luke. It was still bad. wrecked. Yeah, it was bad wrecked. Yeah. And he said, you know, Jed, I know this probably ain't the time to tell you, but I sure am glad this happened to you and not me. Said, I've been worried <laughs> sick about scratching this damn thing. <laughs> and he said, now I don't have to worry about it no more. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Luke. <laughs> but that's just who he was. So definitely shout out to Luke Bendall. All right, guys, that's the end of the show. Thank you for listening. We will be back and talk to you real soon about more sportsman drag racing. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.